0: Good morning. Have you ever heard of a slave with a benefits package? How about a slave whose benefits include adoption with a full share in the inheritance that belongs to the master's only begotten son? An inheritance that includes life that never ends. Well, that's our benefits package as slaves of the living God. Those and many more benefits belong to us who have been purchased out of slavery to sin to be willing and joyful slaves of the Most High God. Paul will talk in the last few verses of this morning's passage about the marvelous benefit that we receive in our new assignment as slaves of righteousness and slaves of God. But first, he's going to give us our job description. Here's where we're going to go this morning in verses 15 to 23. First in verse 15, Paul presents a question. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And then as he works his way through the answer to that very important question, he focuses on slavery. And he says first in verse 16 that you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Then in verses 17 to 18, he says to us who are the redeemed, you, you have already become slaves to righteousness. And in verse 19, based on what he has just declared, he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness and not to sin. And finally, in verses 20 to 23, he talks about our benefits package. The first thing Paul does is to talk about, uh, is to present a question. And actually, let's go ahead and, and uh, work through this passage. I'll ask you again to stand as I read the passage. I'm actually going to start in verse 12, so that we can get the whole flow of thought, because the passage we're looking at today uh, directly ties together with what we saw last week. Romans 6, verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God As those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then begins today's passage. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Father, we ask you to help us to set aside whatever's distracting us this morning, that we might humble ourselves before you to truly hear what this powerful passage has to say to us. This is the heart of our job description, our calling as those whom you've redeemed. We ask that your spirit would be at work in us through your word this hour to pierce our hearts and to give us great clarity about the nature of that uncompromising calling. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last time in verses 12 to 14, we saw that Paul commanded us not to, to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but instead to present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. He ended that passage in verse 14 by saying, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. He immediately picks up that statement in verse 15, and he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? So he starts with a question that's directly tied to what he just said. Then in verses 15 and 16, he follows the same pattern that he used in verses 1 through 3. He poses a question based on what he just said. Then he answers it first with the forceful negative, may it never be. And then he immediately responds with another question that starts with, do you not know? Now, the question here in verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, is almost the same as the question that he asked back in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? In both cases, the the heart of the question is, since we're now under grace and not under law, does that mean we can sin with impunity? The fact that he, that he repeats the same essential question and that he does so by presenting this almost the same structure should certainly tell us that we need to be paying close attention to his answer both times that this pattern comes up. Repetition is theological glue throughout scripture and we're supposed to pay attention when we see the same ideas coming up again. The heart of Of Paul's answer in both cases is that the question proves we don't really understand the sanctifying power and purpose of grace. At the beginning of the chapter in the first round to his answer to this critically important question Paul's point was that the grace of God is what unites us with Christ in the likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. Our unity with Christ in his death to sin frees us from the power of sin. And our unity with Christ in his resurrection gives us newness of life and calls us to enter into that newness of life. On the basis of that reality, of what's true, what's true of us in Christ, we are then called, in verse 11 of chapter 6, to count ourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God. So the purpose and power of grace is not to open the door to more sin. It is uh, to make us dead to sin and alive to God. Now, Paul's second answer to the same question is all about slavery. His answer is that the grace of God frees us from slavery to sin in order to make us slaves of righteousness. And it is as slaves of righteousness that we truly come to put on righteousness in practice. That's called sanctification. He'll go on to say that the final outcome of this wonderful slavery is that we enter into eternal life. In both rounds of the critical question, Paul makes it clear that the law could never accomplish that which grace accomplishes because it was never intended by God to do so. It's important for us to understand what Paul means when he says in verses 14 and 15 that we are, under, we are not under law but under grace. Under law does not mean under a system based on merit. A lot of people that, think that uh, that's what it's talking about. Nor does it mean under a system devoid of grace. The Torah, the law of Moses, was a gracious gift from God to his covenant people. The law displays to us what our God is like and gives us very specific examples to show how his character is worked out in our relationship, first with him and then with our fellow man. That's how the Ten Commandments break down. The law shows us his holiness His righteousness, His justness, His compassion, His mercy, and His grace. And they show us what those attributes look like in real life. That knowledge is a gracious provision indeed. In Psalm 119, the psalmist repeatedly says that he delights in the law of God. Paul says in the very next chapter of Romans, Romans 7, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And that not one stroke, not the smallest letter, a stroke of a letter of the law would pass away until all is accomplished. So when Paul says in Romans 6, in verses 14 and 15, you are not under law but under grace, he's not saying that the Jews who were under the law of Moses were somehow separated from access to the grace of God. What he is saying is that we who have been redeemed by God are no longer under the sin-eliciting power of the law. Instead, we are under the sin-eliminating power of grace. In effect, Paul's answer to the question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, is to turn that question into a statement. We shall not sin because we are not under law but we are under grace. To treat grace as a license to sin grievously misses the purpose both of law and of grace. One of the most fundamental purposes for which God gave the law was to show us without a doubt that we are slaves to sin apart from the grace of God that we are helpless to free ourselves from that slavery by our own devices. In Galatians 3.24, Paul says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Just as the law proved us to be slaves to sin, grace proclaims that we are slaves to righteousness. Having just declared that grace most certainly is not a license to sin, Paul now proceeds in verse 16 to make a very important point by posing a second question. And his point is that you are inevitably slaves to the one whom you obey. He says, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Essentially what he's saying here is that we all obey something. Whether we recognize it or not. And there are really only two paths. And I'm going to ask that the young people in our in our congregation this morning really pay attention at this point. There are only two paths either we're obeying sin or we are obeying righteousness Uh, and actually he's saying we're obeying obedience in verse 16 and if that gives you trouble just change the word obey to the word submit and you'll still have the essential meaning either we submit to sin or we submit to obedience to God and either way that submission makes us slaves It's very important for us to believe and to reckon with the fact that this dichotomy is absolute. What that means is that God does not give us the option to add another category. There's a very strong mindset among some believers, and I fear particularly among young believers in our postmodern culture, that says there are lots of things in life that just can't be spiritualized. Most of life just is what it is. It doesn't fit into spiritual or even into biblical categories. There's spiritual stuff and then there's real life stuff. So my life doesn't have to be all about God all the time in order for me to be okay with God. That's just impractical. Now I ask you, is that approach to life an accurate reflection of reality as God presents it here? Absolutely not. That way of thinking adds a category, some kind of benign middle path that God emphatically and conclusively says does not exist. One of the most nefarious and destructive lies propagated by the world, the flesh, and the devil is that there's some category of life that doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual realm, that isn't part of the spiritual battle in which God says you and I are constantly engaged. I mentioned James 4, verses 4 and 5 last week. I want to go there again, but look also at the verses that come right after those two verses God says in James four four, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And whoever makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will free from, uh, flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, or cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. James is not saying that the normal Christian life should be characterized by misery and mournfulness and weeping. He's saying that if you are double-minded, if you are seeking to be a friend of this world, then make no mistake, you are committing spiritual adultery. There are only two possible allegiances. There are only two possible paths. And if that's what you're doing, if you're adding a third, God's uncompromising call to you is to humble yourself before the face of God. Do you see the repeated emphasis in this passage on humility? Humility is the key to getting past adulterous and double-minded thinking. The very heart of the failure that leads to that kind of foolishness is a failure of humility, a failure to set aside our way of thinking and to submissively accept God's way of thinking. If you've allowed yourself to believe that there's a harmless middle path that pushes God aside and makes him irrelevant to most of your words and decisions and actions, then may your prideful and complacent laughter be turned to mourning as you finally see with clear vision the truth about your slavery either to sin or to righteousness repent of the lie that you have accepted and humbly turn your face to God then you will know his greater grace then he will exalt you then you will know the freedom from sin and self that is your birthright as a child of God. And that freedom is the freedom to be a blessed slave of God. Either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience, so which is it? There's another very important connection here that must not be missed, and it's the connection between grace and slavery to God. I believe that we, especially we who are part of the church in America, have our categories seriously wrong when it comes to the freeness of the gift. Now let me be clear about this. Nobody believes more certainly than I that God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ is absolutely free. That gift proceeds from His amazing grace alone, and it includes our redemption, our rebirth, our adoption as sons, our forgiveness, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, and everything else that we find in Scripture that belongs to us as the redeemed of God. But the fact that our entire package of salvation is freely given to us who deserve only eternal condemnation does not mean that that amazing gift has no claim over our lives. We have this very Western idea that because we can never pay God back for what he has given to us in Christ, that that means we have no debt to him. From a biblical perspective, that's utter nonsense. The terrible debt of our sin has been paid in full. It is finished. But the glorious debt that accrues to us as bondservants of the living God has only just begun. God purchased us out of the slave market of sin to be His people, His treasured possession, His inheritance for all eternity. We belong to Him. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20, Paul says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know... Those words sound familiar? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You and I, as the redeemed of God, are owned. We've been bought with a price, and that price was the blood of God's only begotten Son. And when we act as if the life that God has given to us in Christ belongs to us instead of to Him, we make a mockery of that price that He paid. Beloved, a slave doesn't have his own agenda. A slave doesn't have his own goals or priorities. You know what a slave has? A slave has a master. And his master's agenda, his master's program, his master's priorities tell that slave everything he needs to know to order his days. Jesus was the perfect expression of bond service to the Father. Everything he said and everything that he did was to further his Father's agenda. There was no other agenda. If his submission to the Father's program had wavered at all, you and I would be lost forever. If you ever want to know what submission to God is supposed to look like, you need to look no further than Jesus Christ. So Paul makes it very clear in verse 16 that there are only two possible paths and both are entirely about Slavery. He also makes it clear in that same verse, in verse 16, that there are only two possible results. The result of slavery to sin is death. The result of slavery to obedience is righteousness. Now, that's a contrast that we might not expect at first, right? Because the opposite of death is life, not righteousness. But I believe Paul's being very intentional with his choice of words. The central theme in chapter 6 is sanctification. That is how God imparts his holiness and righteousness to us in practice. And what he's saying here is that the way in which God's righteousness gets imparted to us is through our slavery to obedience. And he'll get to the life part in just a bit, but he's making sure we don't miss the step called sanctification. Our slavery to obedience results in practical righteousness here and now. Having forcefully set before us that there are only two options available, slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness, Paul immediately turns again to that which is already true of us as the redeemed of God. In verses 17 and 18 he says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Just as with every command that Paul sets before us, the command to present ourselves as slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness, is inextricably connected to what is already true of us. If I could capture the heart of Paul's powerful exhortation that I think goes through this entire chapter, in just a few words, it would be, be who you are. The essence of his appeal to us as those who have died to sin with Christ and have been raised with him to newness of life is quite simply... Act in keeping with that reality. To be in practice who God has already made us, in fact. Now this is important beyond measure. I believe the most crippling thing that ever happens to a Christian is when he buys into the lie that says he is not truly free from the power of sin and is not truly alive to God. In Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, Our old self was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Do you actually believe that? That you've been freed from the controlling power of sin through your union with Christ? If you do, how does that certainty affect you when you find yourself repeating the same sin over and over, or even going back to a sin that you thought you had put behind you? When you sin, what went wrong? Was God lying when He said you're free from the power of sin? Do you conclude by looking at your own lousy performance that the promise of God really isn't true? Or do you press on in submission to God knowing and counting his promise to be true. There's a vast difference between those two approaches. One defeats, the other overcomes. Some Christians, when they encounter professing believers who repeat the same sins over and over, simply conclude that those professing believers were never saved in the first place. It seems to me that that approach has been gaining popularity lately, the approach that says if a If someone who says he is a believer is is acting like a slave to sin, then he must be a slave to sin and must never have been saved. There's no doubt that some who profess to believe the biblical gospel in reality do not believe that gospel, no doubt. And so those people are still slaves to sin, and they can't do anything about it until they come to Christ. But Paul doesn't go there in this passage. Paul is talking to people whom he acknowledges as saints of God but who are clearly struggling to lay hold of the freedom from sin that God has granted to them in Christ. In fact, a great deal of what Paul says in this chapter, I think, would be pointless if the struggle to count on and act on the reality of our freedom from the power of sin wasn't a common struggle among believers. I think it is. His answer to that struggle is not to question the salvation of his readers. It is to call true believers to live in keeping with their new identity. So in verse 18, he says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I think it's important at this point for us to revisit the issue of reckoning. That came up very powerfully in verse 11. It's hard for me to believe that a Christian would be capable of flatly denying what God declares in this chapter about our freedom from the power of sin. It's unbelievers, not believers, who deny and suppress the truth of God according to Romans chapter 1. Christians don't treat the Bible as a lie, but believers are capable of a failure that is perhaps even more insidious than an outright denial of what God says about our freedom from the power of sin. And that is the failure to count that freedom to be true. Sure, we acknowledge it as the word of God. And we happily agree that God's word is true, right? But I'm convinced that we often do not act as if these promises are true. And the reason that our thoughts and our speech and our actions so often contradict what we believe to be true is because we are not counting it to be true. And so the fact that it is true becomes of little or no consequence to us in our daily lives. I think that's precisely why the very first command in this epistle is to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Reckoning is actively replacing the lies and garbage that are bouncing around in our heads that are hitting us from all sides with the clear and simple truth that God declares to be true. And that's precisely why Paul, as soon as he has driven home the all-consuming nature, either of slavery to sin or of slavery to righteousness, immediately reminds us of the promise and certainty that we have already been freed from slavery to sin. We need to be reminded of that reality all the time. We need to be counting it as true every moment of every day. As soon as we cease to intentionally reckon it as true, we begin to drift back into the direction of the lie that says we're still enslaved to sin. And when that lie is is allowed to invade and occupy our thinking, we simply become spiritually hamstrung, crippled. I think we all see this a lot, not just in other Christians, but in ourselves. Paul says in verse 17, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of righteousness, of teaching to which you were committed. The words, you were committed, are passive. What he's saying is, we were handed over to the truth. And that truth includes everything that he's already presented in this epistle and everything he's going to go on to present. And the words obedient from the heart in verse 17 are critically important. The obedience to which you and I are called is willing, joyful obedience. Obedience from the heart. It's always been that way. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16, Moses said to Israel, circumcise them your heart, and stiffen your neck no more. And then a few verses later he said, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. First Samuel twelve twenty four. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. God's call to His people in every age is a call to obedience that overflows from grateful hearts. Hearts that know and recognize who He is and what He's done. In verse 16, Paul made it clear we're slaves to the one whom we obey. There are only two paths, both of which make us slaves. And there are only two results, death or life. Then in verses 17 and 18, he said, we have already become slaves of righteousness. Now in verse 19, he gets to the command that follows from that knowledge that we are slaves of righteousness and we are not slaves of sin. He says in 619, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. I believe the point of his comment at the beginning of that verse, where he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, is simply that the command he's about to present shouldn't even be necessary in light of all that he's just said. We already are slaves to righteousness and we already have become obedient to that form of teaching to which we were handed over when we were justified and reconciled to God. So the command to present ourselves to God for his purposes should go without saying. But it doesn't go without saying because of the weakness of our flesh. Paul says that we formerly presented the members of our bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness Resulting in further lawlessness. Now his description of that progression that occurs when we give ourselves over to sin, I think is very instructive. Whatever self-indulgent behavior we set out to allow ourselves, either passively or actively, it by no means stops there. Lawlessness leads to further lawlessness. Every form of self-indulgence leads to more and greater self-indulgence. You don't have to look very far to see that in action. A powerful biblical example is the account of David and Bathsheba. David's initial lapse of laziness, hanging around at home and gazing down on his neighbor's roofs at the time when kings normally go to war, led to the sin of lust when he saw Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. Then his sin of lust led to the sin of adultery when he sent his servants to bring Bathsheba into his bedchamber. Then when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, his sin of adultery led to the sin of deception. When he brought Bathsheba's husband Uriah in from battle to sleep with his wife so it would appear that he was the father of the child in Bathsheba's womb. Then when Uriah heroically refused himself the pleasure of intimacy with his wife while his comrades were out fighting in the battle, David's sins of laziness, lust, adultery, and deception gave way to the sin of murder when he commanded Joab, the leader of his armies, to send Uriah to the front of the battle on a suicide mission where he was killed. It is inherent in the nature of lawlessness, that it breeds further lawlessness. That's something we need to know very clearly about the way slavery to sin pans out. When you present yourselves for obedience to sin, you enslave yourself to sin. When you make impurity and lawlessness your master, impurity and lawlessness take over. You become more and more calloused against righteousness and more and more accepting of sin. But, beloved, that's the pattern that's in keeping with who you used to be, not with who you are. And the wonderful thing is that the same pattern of escalation holds true with regard to our new slavery, but with a vastly different result. In verse 19, Paul says, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Slavery to sin leads to further sin. Slavery to righteousness leads to practical righteousness and ultimately to eternal life. Sanctification is being set apart to God. That's what it means. Sanctification is the righteousness of God worked out in our daily lives in our relationship with him and in our our relationship with other people. And just as surely as slavery to sin gives rise to greater and more damaging sin, slavery to righteousness gives rise to real, practical holiness. When you willingly and humbly submit yourself to God, righteousness takes over and has its way with you. And if the escalating power of sin feels threatening to you, the escalating power of righteousness is far more fearsome because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The presence of sin in your life as a believer is an alien presence. It is an experience that is in contradiction to the true nature that you possess as the redeemed of God. The presence and power of righteousness in your life as a believer is perfectly in keeping with your new nature. Your true nature, the nature of Christ in you. When My brother Don Glenn talked this morning about hypocrisy, about the mask. It made me think of this. You know what the world says hypocrisy is for a Christian? The world says we're hypocrites when we do that which is righteous because we still have this struggle with sin. You know what God says is hypocrisy for a believer? It's the failure to act in keeping with your true nature. Those are diametrically opposite concepts. The power of your willing slavery to righteousness overcomes the impulse of sin. Beloved, never, never buy into any lie that says otherwise. Never think that God has left you powerless to the sin that formerly enslaved you count as true that which is true, that you've been freed from the controlling power of sin and from the curse of sin to walk in newness of life. Count as true that you are slaves of righteousness. Count as true that the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come, That resurrection power now resides in you. So sin shall not be master over you. In verses 20 to 23, Paul finishes out this wonderful chapter by speaking of the benefit that we now receive as slaves to God. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) I love the way he presents this. The only benefit we received from slavery to sin was freedom from righteousness. (laughs) And to that freedom we say good riddance. When we were slaves to sin, we were shut off from righteousness. We were lost and dead in our sin. And there was only one destiny for us as slaves to sin. That destiny was death. The only outcome possible. But now we who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ are slaves of the most powerful and most benevolent master anyone has ever known. The one who bought us to be his own possession has promised to make us share in his holiness And in his righteousness, and he has granted to us everlasting life. And you know what that life is? That life is relationship with him. Romans 8, 17 says that we who are children of God are heirs also. Heirs of what? Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our inheritance. David said in Psalm 16 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Verse 23 is very well known and is often used in uh, sharing the gospel. Uh, And I believe that's perfectly fitting because the principle presented in in this verse stands on its own. But the context in which this great verse occurs is talking about sanctification and specifically in verses 22 and 23 paul is talking about the ultimate outcome the ultimate benefit of sanctification which is eternal life he's looking at eternal life here as a future event and that doesn't mean we don't possess eternal life from the moment we first believe in jesus christ john says in john 5 24 truly truly i say to you whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed, already has passed out of death and into life. But we won't fully lay hold of that life until we stand blameless in the presence of God. And that future culmination or completion of our entrance into the life that God has promised to us is what Paul is talking about here. In verse 22, Paul says our enslavement to God produces the benefit of sanctification and the outcome of sanctification is eternal life. And in the very last verse of this passage, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord the same life that Paul said is the outcome of our sanctification, he now declares to be a free gift that we receive in Jesus. Just as with our justification and our reconciliation and our rebirth and every other good thing that comes down from the Father of lights, our eternal life is a free gift that we possess only through our union with Jesus Christ. And the last prepositional phrase at the end of this chapter is the most important phrase of all. Verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you got your Bibles with you, flip back, look at Romans three twenty-four. How is it that we have been justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God? It is as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now look at Romans 5.1. How is it that we have peace with God? It is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5.11. How is it that we have received reconciliation with God? It is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5:17. How is it that we come to reign in life and to overcome the reign of death? It is through the one Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5:21. How is it that grace comes to reign through righteousness to eternal life? It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 6.11 How is it that we are dead to sin, but alive to God? It is in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 6.23 How is it that we receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life? It is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, everything that is worth having, everything that will endure after the destruction of the kingdom of this world and after the renewing of all things, belongs to us only because we who have believed in Jesus Christ are now found to be in Jesus Christ. But what if you're not in him because you have not yet trusted only in him? Then you're still a slave to sin. And there's only one outcome of slavery to sin and that's death. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 tells us what that death is. It says it's eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. How do you go from the path that's destined to death to the path that's destined to eternal life? Is it by promising God that you'll be a good slave? No. The way you become a redeemed bondservant of the living God is by taking God at his word. You can do nothing to make yourself acceptable in his eyes. You can only fall down in humility before him and confess that you are helpless to make yourself righteous in his sight. And then accept the free gift of his righteousness a gift that he paid for in full when he sent his only son to die in your place on the cross to pay your eternal penalty to God. Abandon any trust that you have in yourself or in any other thing to make yourself right in the eyes of God and trust in Jesus Christ alone. If you do, God promises that you will be eternally saved in every possible sense of that word, and you'll begin a life of blessed and absolute enslavement to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you're already a believer, don't resist the slavery to which you've been called. (laughs) The most exalted title that any person can ever bear is Servant of the Most High God. Dear Father... Never let us forget that you've redeemed us from our slavery to sin in order to make us slaves of righteousness. When we act as if life can be had without being humbly yielded to you as willing slaves, we pray that you'd break us of that foolishness and bring us back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We ask this in his precious name